Happy New Year. I missed you last week. Last week we, were, uh, we worshipped uh, at my sister-in-law's church out in Brea with my in-laws who are in from Tennessee. And uh, I truly, uh, it was good to, to go and worship somewhere else, but it made me miss Grace so much. And I didn't get to see your smiling faces as well. So I, am, uh, I was looking forward so much to being with you again today. And um, just being away for a week makes me uh, want to be back. So... God bless you all. Uh, you're a wonderful, wonderful church, and I'm so thankful for our staff, for Pastor Ed and Pastor David and, and the rest that are, uh, that are so wonderful to work, for, work with and, and, uh, and, um, and serve, serve the Lord together with. But this is a new year. It's a new year, and uh, a new year is a good time for new beginnings. It's a good time for a fresh start. Sometimes it's good for a restart, but it's also a good time to rethink the familiar, to, uh, to re-examine, to reconsider some things that we think we know well. Now, when it comes to familiar scriptures, the Sermon on the Mount is probably the most well-known part of Jesus' teaching, but it's also the least understood and the least obeyed. And so we're going to be looking at the Sermon on the Mount, and I would like to ask you to open your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 5. And when you find that, please stand with me as we read God's word. And uh, I, I love having uh, us stand to read the word because, well, first of all, they did it in the Bible, but they also did other things in response. They, they raised their hands, they, they fell on their faces before God in worship. But I think it's good for us to, to, to think as we're, as we're opening this book, this is different. This is God's word. It's not just anybody's word. This is what God has to say to us. Now, we're just going to read uh, two verses today. And before I say that, I want to I say this. Few understand and even less obey the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And there are a lot of opinions about this sermon. Some people say that it is not for today. Other people say that it, uh, it's an impossible ideal. But I believe the Bible speaks today, and I believe the Sermon on the Mount is for everyone who wants to follow Jesus. So let's read. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them. And Lord God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you, Lord, that we could read it this morning and listen. And we thank you, Lord, that you, you do a work in our hearts when we, when we think deeply about what you have to say. We, you change us as, as we're exposed to your word. And we pray, Lord, once again, that you would open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things in this book. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. The Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever by the greatest preacher ever. Now, I realized something recently about myself, and it was difficult to, for me to admit, but it's the truth. I really don't like jigsaw puzzles all that much. Okay, growing up, my family loved to do jigsaw puzzles, uh, and I was part of that. Especially around Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's. And I went along with it for years. It wasn't until this year 
that I could finally admit that I don't really like jigsaw puzzles. Um, I liked to find the edges right at the start, but then I'd lose interest, you know, and I, I'd wander back when it was almost done and there were a few more pieces to put in. Uh, now, my family had this tradition, and it was a very frustrating tradition. Um, someone would sneak a piece or two and slip it in their pocket, breaking the cardinal rule of puzzling. And when it came time to finish the puzzle, everyone's looking for the final piece or two. All of a sudden, the missing piece would show up. I hated that. Unless, of course, I had the last piece. Then it was really fun. But I was finally able to admit it this year that I, I don't really have a lot of use for jigsaw puzzles. Uh, when one is being worked on, I will find almost anything else to do. You know, clean the garage, wash dishes, uh, clean the backyard, you know, get a root canal, whatever, whatever I can do, find to do. See, I like the beginning, I like the end. Um, it's, it's the middle that weighs me down. It's, it's, the, it's the slow middle. Um, that's how some people are when it comes to the more difficult parts of the Word of God. Uh, you love the comforting passages. It's the hard sayings that weigh you down. Like me with jigsaw puzzles, you go and find something else to do rather than taking the time and dig deeper. You want to be there at the beginning of the Christian life? You want to experience the benefits of the end rewards, you know, heaven and all that. But it's just the, uh, the living in the middle that's so hard. The puzzles are confusing. Puzzles are hard to figure out. They're difficult to put together. And so is a lot of the Bible. It's hard to figure out. You've, you've got to study it. You've got to know its borders. You've got you to understand the landscape. Now, the landscape or the setting of the Sermon on the Mount includes what's right before it in Matthew chapter 4, verses 23 to 25, this summary that we looked at several weeks ago of Jesus' ministry, that Jesus was going all over Galilee teaching and preaching and healing. And he obeyed the Father. He, he fulfilled the Old Testament expectations for the kingdom. He was teaching in the synagogues, in their local houses of worship, he was preaching, he was announcing good news, announcing the kingdom had come. He was motivating people to act. He was going around healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness, meeting physical and spiritual needs, restoring people. Now there's a logical flow between Matthew chapter 4 and Matthew chapter 5. But the Sermon on the Mount, all three chapters, Matthew chapter 7 and uh, and back to 6 and 5, 5, 6, and 7, all 111 verses are to be understood in light of the crowd's initial response to Jesus. When Jesus went around and he was teaching and preaching and healing, the people brought their, brought their friends and their relatives to Jesus. Well, they wanted them to be healed. They wanted themselves to be healed. So they brought these people to Jesus, but they also spread the news about Jesus all over the place. And they did that uh, in all the known world. Verse 25 of Matthew chapter 4, we read that large crowds followed Jesus from all over the place. So what did Jesus do? Well, in verse 1 of chapter 5, it says that when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. He went up on a hill. 
He got away from the crowds. Now, the location was driven in part by the context, uh, or rather the various context in which Jesus spoke this sermon. Uh, There was the cultural context. Uh, People were, in those days, they were expecting a conquering king. Uh, The Messiah was to be a a political and social uh, ruler. See, they were focused on the externals of all that. Uh, Military might, uh, you know, physical power and strength. Now, in that culture like ours, what you could do determined who you were. They expected the Messiah to be this larger-than-life figure that would uh, free them from the persecution of Rome, that would lead them to victory over their enemies, that would bring in financial and, and social blessings for the community. That's what they were expecting. You think about Jesus and what he did with the people. After he fed the 5,000 people, you know, uh, talking about multiplication here, uh, took a few loaves and fish and fed 5,000 people. Well, people latched onto that. They're like, hey, he's going to feed us too. He's going to heal us. He's going to take care of all of our uh, temporary needs. In fact, in John, the Gospel of John in chapter 6, uh, right after Jesus fed the 5,000, and uh, he, he fed the 5,000, and it's right before he walked on the water, doing all these great things. Here's, here's what we read in verse 15 of John chapter 6. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew to the mountain by himself alone. You see, he knew that the people were going to come and make him their king. Well, he would make the best king in their minds. He'd heal all their diseases. He'd give them food. He'd meet all their temporary needs. It's the best. Problem was, that's not why Jesus came. Those kind of blessings would be part of the picture. But that's not why he came. In fact, in in John chapter 18, when Jesus is being being examined by, by Pilate himself, He's asking him all these questions about who he is and, and, and what he does. Here's what Jesus said in John chapter 18, verse 36. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. Not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm out of this realm so there was the cultural context there was also the religious context in in jesus's day there were all these religionists you know people that that groups that had cropped up with differing opinions about what it meant what it took to be right with god and they weren't shy about sharing their opinions uh you, you had the the well-known groups like the pharisees you know they were legalistic they followed tradition more than they followed God and what he said. Uh, you had the Sadducees. They twisted scripture to, to fit their beliefs and their desires. There were other groups. There, there were the Essenes. Uh, they believed that you had to separate yourself from the rest of society. And so they isolated themselves. You know, they, they went off and lived in caves and they lived in the desert. Uh, there were the Zealots. 
The zealots believed you had to be a political activist, that you had to take up arms against your oppressors, arms against Rome. You see, Jesus, he blew the religious power brokers of his day right out of the water. He blew their minds. He turned the tables up on on their ideas. Um, He redefined what it meant to relate to God and to your fellow man. See, it wasn't a matter of you making yourself right before God or acceptable to God. It was God stooping to reach down to man who would in turn respond in faith, uh, trusting and, and obeying. That's the way that God had always intended it. But mankind had corrupted it. So you've got the cultural and you've got the religious context in which Jesus spoke. And alongside of that, you've got the larger biblical one. Uh, Think with me for a moment about how the Old Testament ended. In fact, you're in Matthew, so go back a couple pages to Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, and go to the last chapter and the last verse of the Old Testament, Malachi 4.6. The Old Testament ended when Jesus is reminding the people to remember Moses and remember that he was going to send, that God was going to send Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible, the awesome day of the Lord. And then look at the very last verse. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children. Wonderful. And, and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Excellent. And then look at these words. So that I will not come and smite the land with a curse, with a ban of destruction. See, the Old Testament ended with a warning of a curse. The New Testament starts with the promise of blessings. And Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, as we're going to see starting next week, said, blessed, blessed, blessed. It's a promise of blessing that Jesus brings. Jesus offered blessing instead of a curse to those who would choose to follow him, to those who'd yield to his lordship and re- receive the true righteousness that only he gives. See, in Hebrews chapter 12, the kind of contrast between the old and the new, in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 18, a contrasting Uh, Zion and Sinai, the two mountains. And and the writer of Hebrews, starting by saying, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, a physical mountain, and to blazing fire and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind, the kind of situation that some dealt with in the Old Testament, uh, and to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words... Sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. That's not the context to which you've come. It says they could not even bear the command. If even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. It will be killed. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am fear and tremble. I am full of fear and trembling. That's, that's the context that the Old Testament was in. Well, here's what it says in verse 22 of, of, Hebrews 8, of Hebrews 12. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels, to the general assembly, to the church of the firstborn, the church of Jesus Christ. 
who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks better than the blood of Abel. See, there was this contrast, the Old Testament, with the the curse hanging over them. But Jesus lifting the curse and, and promising blessing. It's significant. You see it in the Beatitudes. But it's significant to see whether you look at the biblical context, whether you look at the the religious context or the cultural context, it's significant to see that Jesus was not what people were were looking for. They were looking for the Messiah, but he wasn't what they wanted. They wanted someone that would meet their temporary needs, that would give them food, and that would bring them healing. People were expecting the Messiah, but Jesus wasn't what they had in mind. He did exactly the opposite of what they thought. Again, they wanted the temporary, and he wanted to bring them the eternal. He he was the answer to mankind's deepest need for freedom um, from the power and the penalty of sin. And then you think about his audience. Who came to hear this sermon? This sermon by the greatest preacher ever, the greatest sermon ever, who heard it? Well, you had two distinct groups. You had his disciples and you had the crowds. In, in verse 1, it says that when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, up on the hill, and after he sat down, he was assuming the posture of a teacher, uh, a rabbi would sit down to teach in those days. It says that after he sat down, his disciples came to him. They came to him as students. They came to him to listen. They came to him to learn from him. His disciples came to him. They came to listen. They came to learn. And it, this is the first usage of the, of the word disciple in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, the Greek word mathetes. It's used 215 times in the New Testament. It means pupil, student, um, learner, almost always of those who follow Jesus. It has the idea of, of, t- of, of attachment to a person, that a disciple would commit themselves to another. In Judaism, a disciple chose their own teacher. Jesus turned that around and chose his own followers. See, Jesus' way is unique. It starts with his call to follow. And that those who decide to follow then commit themselves to Jesus. They, they commit themselves to obey him, to trust him, but also, and this was, this was unavoidable to, to be a follower of Jesus, to suffer with him. Suffer. These disciples who came to him were waiting on his agenda. They were were sitting at his feet as students waiting for his word. Ready, available, teachable. They wanted to hear what Jesus had to say. And as they yielded to his agenda, they would be changed. They'd never be the same. But what about the crowds? The crowds were around too, right? Well, well, the crowds, remember, Jesus got away from the crowds. He got away from the crowds, but they were curious. They were intrigued by Jesus. They were amazed at Jesus. In fact, go to the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. The very end, Matthew chapter 7 and verse 28. You see the crowd's response. What happened after Jesus said all the things that he said in the sermon? When Jesus had finished these words, when he stopped, it said the crowds were amazed. 
Now that word amazed, you know, we think about, the, we throw that word around. Oh yeah, that's amazing. This word is a, this has a significant uh, meaning to it. It means he blew their minds. They could not believe how amazing his teaching was. Uh, they, they were amazed at his teaching because he was teaching them as having authority and not as their scribes who didn't have the authority. He, he spoke with authority because he was the authority in the universe. But what about the crowds? You know, Jesus has gotten away from them. Yeah, they were blown away by what he said. And he felt love and compassion for them. He looked upon the people and he, he saw them as, as sheep without a shepherd. And he's the good shepherd. But, but he also knew that their motivations for following him weren't always the right motivations. That they didn't always follow him for the right reasons or for pure reasons. You see, crowds like Jesus. I mean, plain and simple, crowds love Jesus. Crowds love Jesus. They don't like us, though. You know why? See, Jesus is perfect. We're not. And they look at us and say, you say you're a follower of Jesus? We don't like you because you're so inconsistent. And I think that's, that's a good thing. It shows that we can't do it on our own. We need Jesus. Point people back to Jesus. That's why I need to be a follower of Jesus because I mess up all the time. But the crowds love Jesus. Thing is, the crowds love Jesus as long as he does what they, what they want. It's significant, very important to see that crowds did not impress Jesus. Crowds don't impress him. See, what Jesus would say in this sermon would weed out those who were there for bread and fish and healing. Who was there for the benefits rather than for who he is, who he was to them. See, he knew their response was selfish. He knew their response was temporary. See, the crowds would eventually uh, deny Jesus' message and, and, and demand his death. I want to say something about us as a church. We need to be careful as a church that we don't do what we do just to get crowds to come to church, just to get people, uh, you know, especially pastor types. So we, we know all the, all, we hear about all the ways you can get people to, to do almost anything. And, and you hear about how you can gather a crowd. We got to be careful. We do not do that as a church. If we do what God calls us to do, if we worship him wholeheartedly, if we care for one another, if we reach out in love to others, if we teach the, the word of God faithfully and accurately, if we connect significantly with people, well, then God will bring about whatever growth he sees fit, both spiritually and numerically. We won't have to manufacture it. But see, Jesus, he reached out to everyone, okay? So the crowds, you know, they could, they could hear this sermon because Jesus was hoping they'd become his disciples. Because you got the disciples, those that were committed to him, then you got the crowds, distinct, not the disciples. He reached out to all of them, but he gave his most focused attention on his disciples, on those who were committed to him. Um, the significance in that is, to, is when you see what Jesus did. See, look at verse 2. What, what Jesus did is he opened his mouth. You say, well, what's the big deal with that? Everybody opens their mouth, right? You open your mouth to, to eat. You open your mouth to, to talk. It's, it's, there's things about the way the Bible is phrased at times that, you know, it, it's not the same as we talk. He opened his mouth 
and began to teach them. Okay, great. Yeah, that's what you do when you, when you teach. Well, there was something significant about that phrase, he opened his mouth, that we've got to understand. This was a common way in those days, a colloquialism. It's a way of saying things. It was a common way of saying that something significant was about to take place, that the person was about to say something very serious, very important, and, and very heartfelt. So he opened his mouth. Uh, he was going to say something very significant, very serious, very important, and very heartfelt to the people. So he began to teach them. Now, what does that refer to? Them. Who is them? That's his disciples. He began to teach his disciples. He's teaching his disciples at this point. Now, the crowds were listening, so they're getting taught as well. But everything he teaches is in context of being a disciple of Jesus. You know, some people will say, you know, I, I, uh, when they're not believers, they'll say, you know, I follow the Ten Commandments. And you're like, yeah, right. You can't keep those. And then, or people will say, you know, I follow the Sermon on the Mount. You've got to just laugh because, you know, if you're going to pick something, pick something a little easier than that, all right? <laughs> you can't. The Sermon on the Mount is the highest uh, standard imaginable. You can't do that. Everything Jesus said is in context of being his disciple and being enabled to do what he's talking about. So what was going to happen was this sermon was going to show his disciples what they now were, would be enabled to, to do and, and how they would be enabled to live because of their faith in him. But it would also show the crowds what was impossible for them to do the impossible standard that they couldn't keep unless they came to faith in Christ. The Sermon on the, on the Mount could be understood as, um, as how a saved person, how a Christian, how a follower of Christ is enabled to live by Jesus and how an unsaved person cannot live without Jesus. See, his teaching caused amazement. They were amazed about it because he was having authority because he is the authority. But why is the sermon so important? Why is the Sermon on the Mount the greatest sermon ever by the greatest preacher ever? Why is it so significant? I want to give you three reasons. And they all interlock like puzzle pieces. First, it's, it's this. And I believe Stott, John Stott said the same thing. He said it's Jesus' countercultural manifesto. A manifesto being a public declaration of, of policy and practice. Um, this was Jesus' public declaration of what he wanted to see. It's the closest thing to a manifesto that Jesus spoke. His statement of policy, his, his statement of practice. Uh, second thing is, it, it's what Jesus expects of his true followers. It's a study in contrasts. There is not one paragraph, not one section of the Sermon on the Mount where the distinction is not made between the, the Christian way of doing things, the Jesus-centered way of doing things, and the non-Christian way of doing things, the self-centered way. It's a study in contrast. So it's Jesus' countercultural manifesto. It's, it's what he expects of his true followers. And the third thing is, Jesus is giving his followers and any who would listen a new way of living, a whole new way of life. It eclipses their former way of life. It's God-centered rather than self-centered. John Stott put it this way. 
It portrays the repentance, the complete change of mind, and the righteousness that belong to the kingdom. It describes what human life and community look like when they come under the gracious rule of God. What human life and community look like when they come under the gracious rule of God. See, that's the gist of the main theme of the Sermon on the Mount. You've got to know what the main theme is. Jesus' agenda for them was not that of the world. It wasn't what the world was expecting of them. It was something different. Jesus said, become like me. Be different. That's the idea of the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, if you go to Matthew chapter 6 and verse 8, hidden right before the Lord's Prayer is the main scripture in the Sermon on the Mount. The main point. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 8. So do not be like them. That's the point of this sermon. Don't be like them. Be different. See, with puzzles, going back to the jigsaw puzzle thing, you have to keep the box top close by so you know what you're working on, right? Whether you're working on a puzzle that has to do with little puppies or the, the, the Statue of Liberty or, or a rainbow or whatever, You've got to know what you're working towards. Jesus says be different. That's what he's angling towards. That's what he is wanting to come about. See, the world says be like everybody else. Serve yourself. Fight for your rights. Defend yourself. Be proud. Jesus says live by my standards, not theirs. Be humble. Be compassionate. Be lowly. Hunger and and thirst for righteousness. Be merciful. Be pure in heart. Be a peacemaker. Allow yourself to be persecuted for my sake. That's what Jesus said. A loser to the world great in God's kingdom be different you got to keep that main idea in mind now this raises several questions about the Sermon on the Mount now the first question and it's gonna it's gonna seem over obvious to you it's this what does it say plain and simple what does the Sermon on the Mount say not what does everybody say about it. Not what, does common, what do commentators say or what do you think about it or what you think it says. What does the Sermon on the Mount actually say? I want to challenge you with something this, this year. I want to challenge you to read the Sermon on the Mount. Not once. Not twice. But over and over and over again all year long. To let the, the, the words of Jesus sink into your soul. It's been said that that a person's thoughts dye their soul. And you spend time thinking deeply about Jesus' words, and you will change. It will saturate your soul. It will come out in your life. People will see a difference. What does it say? You see, we need to listen to Jesus and what he has to say. A disciple, we're... His disciples came to him. A disciple is a student. 
but there is no student without a teacher. See, the Christian life is not a, a self-study program. It's not an independent study program. Jesus is our teacher. Must be our focus. When was the last time that you, that you simply showed up to the class of life and just simply sit at the feet of Jesus? No agenda. Just to simply, like Mary, be enthralled at being in the presence of God. Laying down your ideas. Letting everything go except to be uh, paying attention uh, to Him. So you may need to reevaluate your lifestyle and and reconsider your commitments or even lack thereof if you find yourself in that mode of life and recommit yourself to being a disciple of Jesus. I used to be somewhat wary about this whole idea of recommitting your life to the Lord, but I've come to, to see that the Bible teaches a daily recommittal of life. You wake up in the morning and you say, I want to follow Jesus. I want to follow him. I've been reading through the Old Testament and I'm almost to the end of 2 Chronicles and over and over again in the Old Testament you see God calling his people back to himself and and they say, yes, that's what we want to do and they come back and then they blow it. And and, and he calls them back to himself and and they say, yes, and then they blow it and and it goes on and on and and I just read the other day about this, about the time that they, they, they had to, it had gotten so bad, they had false they had altars to false gods in the temple of God even. And they had to clean out the temple of God. God wants us to do that spiritually. Let him just clean it out and recommit to being his disciples. Listening to him. When was the last time that you just took time to be with Jesus? A whole day? Or a whole hour? Or how about five minutes? You may need to reevaluate your lifestyle and allow God to, to, to deprogram you. Because you may have, have gotten so wrapped up in the world that you've adopted a mindset that's hostile to God. And you call yourself a Christian. And if so, you need to allow God to, uh, to reorient you and to, to refocus your life. Jesus said in John 8, 32 that you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. When he's praying to the Father in John chapter 17 and verse 17, he says, thy word is truth. We've got to take time to, to think deeply on the word of God, to let it get into our souls, let it sink in on a daily basis. The next, the next question is, what does it mean? Okay, so uh, I know what it says, and, I, and I've read it over and over again, and it's getting into my life, and I'm listening, but what does it mean? See, can I understand it? There's a lots of puzzling things, a lot of confusing things in the Sermon on the Mount. And the Jews had an understanding of discipleship. Their understanding of discipleship started with listening, but it wasn't an end in of itself. The listening was was to lead to learning 
and understanding. See, the teacher would, would give instructions. The teacher would give opportunities for questions and answers and give and take and reflection. Process the information. Listening was meant to lead uh, to, to learning and to understanding. You see, everyone who is saved can understand the Word of God. But it takes work to get to the heart of some of the things that are in the Word of God because there are some hard sayings, some things hard to understand. But God's Word is not bound by our preconceived opinions, by our preconceived notions. It's very easy for me to come to the Word of God with my theological framework and push everything through that. It's very easy to come to the Word of God with ideas of, of, of what you think it says or what you think it means and push everything through that grid. We've got to let the Word of God speak. The Word of God is not bound. Paul talked about this in 2 Timothy. Two things I want to point out that he had to say to us in 2 Timothy, that the Spirit had to say to us through Paul. One was in verse 9. He's talking about himself be, being imprisoned for the gospel. He was in, jail, in chains in jail as a prisoner, and he had done nothing wrong except follow Jesus Christ. And then he says, but the word of God is not imprisoned. And what he meant was the word of God, he was sitting there in prison, and he couldn't get out right then, but the word of God could go anywhere it wants. Martin Luther said this, the word of God is like a lion. Let it loose. It'll take care of itself. It doesn't need to be uh, protected. Thing is, the word of God is not bound. It's not in chains to any man's idea, any religious school of thought, any person's grid that they want to try to put the word of God into. The word of God is not bound. It is free to speak. God will do what he wants with his word when he wants to do it and where he wants to do it and with whom he wants to do it. The word of God, we must let it speak. What does it mean? This learning and understanding that should come about is the next process in the discipleship process. Now, if you call yourself a disciple of Jesus, you'll be doing the other thing that I wanted to point out that Paul said in 2 Timothy, verse 15. Chapter 2, verse 15. Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that does not need to be ashamed, rightfully dividing the word of truth, handling it accurately, interpreting it clearly. See, if you love Jesus, you call yourself a disciple of Christ, that means that you're daily learning and understanding what Jesus says and what that means in your life. What that means for you, where you live. See, you can only understand the word of God by the Holy Spirit's uh, enabling. The Bible will seem, it seems like nonsense to those who aren't born again, who, those who are not saved. But if you love Jesus, you will love the word of God. You'll love the word of God and you'll base everything in your life on Jesus and on the book. Everything. Now, if there's no desire in your life for the Word of God today, it's due to one of two things. Either you're not a Christian, either you're not saved, either you're not a follower of Christ yet, or you're a Christian and you've allowed so much junk into your life, you've allowed so much stuff to go in there, it has cluttered your life and it has clouded your thinking and, and your senses are dulled. And it could be from a lot of different things, and I'll, I'll just name a few. It could be that you're listening 
to a certain kind of music over and over again, and it has saturated your soul to the point that you don't want anything to do with the Word of God, and you don't want to hear what the Word of God has to say. It could be that you have gotten into some movies to the point where they've uh, taken over your mind, or literature. You might like a certain writer so much that every day of your life you got one of their books in your hand and you're reading and you put everything in your life through the grid of living in that little make-believe world of that writer. And you even relate to people in terms of the context of that book. It could be video games. There are people that get so into video games that their entire life is based around making time to do that. And it takes over their life. It could be your work. It could be a hobby. It could be a substance. It could be a person that is keeping you from Jesus. Where you're serving that instead of God. See, Jesus said no one can serve two masters. You can't do it. You are going to love one. You're going to hate the other by virtue of having to make a choice on allegiance. So who's your master? What's your master? You gotta allow God to clean out the junk in your life. If you're a Christian, you say, I'm a follower of Jesus, but there's, there's no pulse, you gotta allow God to clean out the junk in your life so that you can think clearly and, and hear the word of God. Ask yourself, am I, am I really a disciple of Jesus? Or am I just saying that? Am I basing my life on who he is? Am I basing my life on what he has done on the cross when he took my penalty and paid for my sins? And am I committing myself to him on a daily basis? That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Nothing less be able to say yes Jesus I want to follow you to wake up in the morning and say yes I want to I choose to follow Jesus that's what it means to be a disciple of his lots of things to consider but I want to give you one last question here it is what does it do what does it do what does the sermon on the mount do I believe it's true I understand its message but is it useful for daily living is it relevant what difference does it make See, if you call yourself a disciple of Jesus, you have got to live what you believe. You've got to live what you believe. Be a doer of the word, not just a hearer. Now, in Jesus' day, there was a, a group of people who started to teach this, that studying the law was more important than doing it. There are Christians who live like that. They think that studying the Bible is more important than living it. It's very important to study the Bible. You can't live it unless you know it. But you can't stop there. See, Jesus is interested in his disciples knowing and doing the word, living the word. See, the discipleship process started with listening. It led to learning and understanding, but it was meant to lead to applying it to daily life, where you live, in the realms that you live in, in the arenas in which you operate. Mere head knowledge doesn't do anybody any good. If it doesn't get into your life, into your family, into your, your church involvement, into your school, into your sports, into your community involvement, what good is it? 
It can't just stay in your head. It has got to get to the point where it gets to your heart. And if it's in your heart, where your seat of your emotions are, and where your will is, and you're deciding things, it is going to show in your hands and your feet where you live on a daily basis. It is going to play out, and people will see a difference. So how does the Sermon on the Mount play for you in 2009, four days in? Does it ring true in your life? See, some things are hilariously out of date. I mean, you, you read a book that was written 20 years ago, or you watch a movie from the 80s, and, and you laugh because it's so out of date, and you, you can smell it a mile away. But then there are some things that are timeless. They are, they are classic. They are not bound by, by fads and by uh, uh, passing fancies. They, are, they apply to every age and every life stage. That's how it is with the Word of God. You can't help be changed by Jesus' sermon. For better or worse, you're either going to throw up your hands and walk away, or you're going to dig in and you're going to say, I'm ready for whatever God has in store for me. You're going to try to control it, or you're going to let it control you. You're going to yield to Christ's lordship, or you're going to insist upon your own. Isn't that the dilemma we're faced with every day? whether I'm going to be insisting on being in control or whether I will acknowledge Christ's supremacy and God's sovereignty. But have you followed Jesus to the point where your life is significantly different, where it is noticeably different? Have you ever had anyone say to you or wonder what, what it is about you that is different? Or maybe there's no distinction between you and the world. Maybe you look and act like everyone else. I think that's one of the number one problems with the church of Jesus Christ. We look and act like everybody else. We want to tell people that Christians can have fun. I never find that in the Bible. I find that Christians are to be different. Joyful. Christ-centered. The Sermon on the Mount you can't do it on your own. You just can't. If you're a Christian, God will enable you to live like that. You go, I, I can't believe that I could live like that. Well, it's going to take us the better part of this year to get through the Sermon on the Mount. And I believe that God is going to do a work in us as we uh, gain a new openness to what he wants to say to us, what he actually says. But see, the Sermon on the Mount necessitates a new birth, that you would be born again. It's too demanding to do in human strength. That's why Jesus said you must be born again when he spoke to Nicodemus in John chapter 3 and verse 7. You see, Jesus' new way of living comes from a new way of thinking, which comes from a new birth spiritually. That's why in Ephesians 2 it says that you were dead in your transgressions and sins, but God made you alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And if you're not a Christian today, you need to become a Christian. You cannot live without Jesus Christ. And you will not live forever without Jesus Christ. And so if you're not a Christian today, you need to come to Christ. To believe that he died for your sins. To believe that he took your penalty. To believe that you cannot do it on your own and that you need him. And I'm going to challenge you today to come to Christ if you don't know him. And I'm going to challenge you that after the service, you're going to tell someone about it too. Because you can't keep that a secret. 
you love your father, you're going to tell people about your father. And how about for all the Christians among us? Those that, that maybe have gotten all junked up in their life by stuff that we've allowed to come into our life that clouds God's voice, that obscures God's voice, that causes us not to even want the word of God. A new year, a great opportunity for a fresh start, great opportunity for a restart. Um, again, it's going to take us the better part of a year to get through this sermon. The, the best sermon ever by the best preacher ever. But I want us to think deeply on Jesus' words. I, I want us to, to take them to heart, to allow God to change us from the inside out. And that is dangerous. So I'm going to proclaim 2009, for the people of grace, a year of living dangerously. I know you're all picturing Mel Gibson running down the, the streets of Jakarta, Indonesia. I don't mean recklessly, but ready for anything God brings our way. Basically, seeking to follow Jesus fully. Seeking to follow Jesus fully. Like Joshua and Caleb in the Old Testament, who followed G God fully. Stood firm in faith. Didn't cave to their, to their contemporaries, but stood firm in faith. That's the challenge that's before us today. Not to cave to the culture. Not to cave to the culture, but to live differently while seeking to make a difference in the culture in which we live. To yield to Christ's lordship in every area of our life. At home, as, as a church, out in the community. And for the person, for the family, for the household, for the church that will take that challenge, there is an amazing adventure awaiting. Let's pray. Lord God, we, we praise you for the, the privilege you've given us to gather today and to, and to take to heart your words. And Lord, we pray, uh, believing that you are good and great and with us right now, and we pray, Lord, that you would help us to listen to what you say. We want to listen, Lord. Help us to understand and, to, and, and then to live it, to truly live it in our lives. We just thank you and, and praise you in Jesus' name.